As I was reading our passage this week at the end of Matthew 8 and the beginning of Matthew 9, I couldn't help but think of another passage in the Old Testament. And this passage is found in Exodus chapter 3 and Exodus chapter 4. It, it tells of Moses' encounter with the Lord through the means of a burning bush. Do you remember this story? The burning bush in the wilderness. God is telling Moses of his plans for him to send him to Egypt to be the instrument of deliverance for the people of God. But Moses has some reservations. He has some questions as he prepares to go and deliver this people. First of all, who do I tell them sent me? Because they're still learning about their God. And then in Exodus chapter four, he says, how can I prove to them that you sent me? Can you, can you give me something so that they know I'm not just some crazy person, some random person coming to lead them out of Egypt, but I've got the power of God on my side that, that you sent me. And God does something really gracious in response to Moses's request. He says to Moses, hey Moses, look in your hand. What do you have? And Moses had a staff. And he says, throw that staff on the ground. And that staff turned into a serpent until he picked it up again and it returned to a staff. And then he says to Moses, hey, stick your hand in your cloak and pull it out and what do you see? And his hand was leprous. And then he says, put your hand back in your cloak and pull it back out and it was healed. See, God gives Moses two signs to prove to the people of God that Moses was indeed their God-sent deliverer. And he gives them even more signs after that. But this story came to my mind because I think something is similar, or something similar is happening, yet greater in Matthew chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 9. Because a greater deliverer than Moses has come. His name is Jesus. And he has been sent by God. But how will the people of God know? How can we, observers of the testimony of Matthew and, and the scripture, how can we know that Jesus is all that he says he is? Is there a sign that he can give to prove his authority, to prove that he is this greater God-sent deliverer, more than that, that he is God himself? Well, friends, this morning we're going to see some signs some signs given to us to open our eyes to see that, that Jesus is the true deliverer of Israel and know that these signs are unmatched. You may remember in the story of the Exodus, the first two signs that, that Moses uses to prove his, his God-sent status are mimicked by the sorcerers of Egypt. When he throws down a staff, they throw down a staff. When he turns the, blood, the, the water of the Nile to blood, they are able to do that as well. And so that mimicry hardens Pharaoh's heart, causing him to doubt Moses' authority to speak on behalf of God. But know this morning that there's no one who can mimic, no one who can come close to the, the authority, the power that Jesus will display this morning in these signs. No one is able to do what Christ has done. This morning we are going to get to behold the unmatched power of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. We're going to look at three stories at the end of Matthew 8 and the beginning of 9 
that offer three different signs, each building on the other to show the full power of Christ, to display his unparalleled authority over every part of creation, over every part of our lives. The Bible wants to help us because in our our hardness of hearts, oftentimes we ask a question like this. Is there still something more powerful than Jesus? Is there still something that Jesus cannot save us from? Yes, we've seen Jesus do powerful things, but is there a limit? Is there something that, that he cannot help us with? Because if there is something that may harden our hearts like Pharaoh, but no, that God this morning wants to move our heart toward worship. He wants to move our heart to belief through three, these miraculous acts to help us know that Jesus is indeed all that he says he is. He wants to, to move us to worship as we see the power and the glory of Christ on display. So let's once again this morning as the people of God come to behold Jesus to see the authority he's been given, to see the power that he alone yields, that he uses to lead us to life everlasting. What we will see this morning through the signs given by Matthew is the promised deliverer, Jesus, who alone has the power and authority to save us from our sins. The first sign that Matthew offers to us it's a pretty powerful sign, a sign that many of us in this room have probably heard about if we've spent any time in church throughout our life. Jesus saves his disciples from a great storm. It's found in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. And this section of Matthew's gospel begins with what is seemingly a normal travel update. In verse 23, Jesus gets into a boat, seemingly to move away from the crowds that have been surrounding him, as we see in verse 18, and the disciples follow him. But while the disciples were on the boat, a great storm arises, according to verse 24, such that the boat was being overwhelmed by the waves. Now know that storms on the Sea of Galilee are not uncommon. They're very common. Every time you get on this sea, you, you could expect some sort of turbulence. And the reason for this, according to Don Carson in his commentary on Matthew, is that the surface of the Sea of Galilee is more than 600 feet below sea level. And the, the rapidly rising hot air draws from the southeastern tablelands violent winds whose cold air churns up the water. So it was normal to have storms here. But this storm seems to be extraordinary. This seems to be a, a greater than average storm, unusually dangerous. And Matthew presents to us two different responses, very opposite, in fact, to this violent storm. Jesus, according to verse 24, is resting. He's sleeping peacefully in the midst of the storm. The disciples, they're not resting, they're restless. They're afraid. They're panicking. And look at their actions in verse 25. They go to Jesus, they wake him, and they say, save us, Lord. We are perishing. Jesus, we're dying out here. 
And in the language of the New Testament, this, this cry is short. It's desperate. It's as if they believe that Jesus is unconcerned with their well-being. But look at his response in verses 26 and 27. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and he rebuked the winds. He rebuked the sea and there was great calm. And the men marveled. How could you not? Saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and seas obey him? Jesus rebukes his disciples and then he rebukes creation. He calls his disciples to rest in him and then he demands that the wind and the sea rest. What power. This is no ordinary thing, even though it's become common in our eyes. Listen, we know the power of storms, right? We've seen how nature can act in an ugly way and completely upend our lives, take everything that we own and even take our lives on occasion. It's the, it's the one thing or one of the few things in this life that we have absolutely no control over. We can't do anything about it. There's been no machine developed that can control the weather. Even the best meteorologists are only right 30% of the time. We can't know, we can't control weather, but Jesus can. Jesus can do this. There's nothing that we can do about a hurricane. There's nothing that we can do about a tornado. There's nothing we can do about a hailstorm, but hide and hope. But Jesus is more powerful than even the greatest storm. It's the first sign offered to us today to know that he is the, the greater God-sent deliverer. He has authority over nature. He controls the wind. He is master of the sea. And what good news for us, friends. The threat that this broken world poses to us is not greater than the salvation that Jesus offers. That's the first sign that Jesus offers to us. Here's a second. Jesus delivers two demon-possessed men. And we see this in verses 28 to 34 of Matthew 8. We're moving here from a display of Christ's authority over physical things, his authority over spiritual things, to the, the spiritual realm. It seems like during the earthly ministry of Jesus, the incarnation of Christ, there was a swell in demonic activity as the evil one tried to oppose what was inevitable, his complete and utter defeat. And in this passage, we see some very strong demonic activity. Look at chapter 8, verse 28. And when Jesus came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, and that's a Gentile area, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs. They were so fierce that no one could pass that way. Now again, demonic activity was more common during the time of Jesus, but this instance seems also unique. As with the storm in the, the previous section, the, the power of these demons, because of their, their sheer number, it was unusual. Mark says that one of the men that he mentions in his gospel was unable to be restrained in Mark chapter 5. But even with all of their strength, 
Even with the power of these demons and the power they, they waged over these men in this area, they recognize something stronger coming to them. They recognize the Son of God. Look at their response to seeing Jesus in verses 29 to 31. Behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. The moment these demons see Jesus coming toward them, they know him. They know, they know, they confess that he is the son of God. They know he's the one who has authority over them. They know he's the one who will judge them. They don't know when this judgment will take place and they don't know why Jesus is currently upon the earth, but they know him. And they they give this rather odd request to Jesus. He's not bound to, but he grants it. They ask him, knowing that he has the authority to cast them out, to send them into some pigs. Again, present because they were in a Gentile area. And he does it. 8.32, he says to them, these demons, go. So they came out immediately and they went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down to the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. What these demons thought would be a safe place for them really led to their destruction. Offering us a glimpse of a glorious future when all unclean things will be removed. A glimpse of the day that we're told about in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, when the devil, his defeat, the defeat of everything associated him will be secured when he is cast out into the lake of fire and tormented forever. But look at the reaction to what occurred. Look at the reaction to this powerful display of the authority of Christ in verses 33 and 34. The herdsmen who were responsible for these pigs, they fled. And going into the city, they told them everything. And listen to this, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. Especially what happened to these, these men that were so powerful, no one could pass that way. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave. They, they begged him to leave their region. These herdsmen, they go and tell the city what happened. But rather than be amazed, rather than marvel at the authority of Christ and grateful that he saved these two men from their destruction, they are Grieved by the loss of some pigs. Now, it was a lot of pigs. 2,000, Mark says in his gospel. But surely the salvation of these men's lives is greater than the loss of the pigs. But they can't get over the loss to see the glory. And so they ask him to leave. What an unfortunate response to this display of the power and authority of Christ, an obvious sign of who Jesus is. Don't you miss it today, friends. Jesus is greater 
and the most powerful powers and principalities of this world. He is greater than the strongest demonic forces. Neither the devil nor his minions are more powerful than Christ. Church family, there is not an ounce of the created order that is greater than Jesus. He has authority over it all. Sign number two. And the final sign, sign number three, is when Jesus fully restores a paralytic man. One of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. Having now shown Christ's authority over the physical and the spiritual, Matthew now wants to make it abundantly clear that the authority that Jesus has is divine. It's God's authority. Now, of course, we've already had glimpses of this in the scenes that we've already looked at. God is the one who is said to have authority over the sea. In Job 38 and in the Psalms, Psalm 29, 65, and 107, And we know that it is God alone who will judge at the appointed time. But what was implicit previously now becomes explicit as Jesus heals and restores this paralytic man. Let's read together Matthew 9, verses 1 to 8. Here's what the Word of God says. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city, Capernaum, his adopted city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And you know what this man did? He got up, and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, They were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So a paralytic man is brought to Jesus by his friends to be healed, which Jesus does. But it's the nature of this healing that is so surprising. Jesus, seeing the faith of the man and his friends, says to them, the faith they place in him, to heal what was otherwise unable to be healed, he says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, isn't that an interesting response? What does the forgiveness of sins have to do with the healing of this lame man? But Jesus wants to do something here. He's he's using this physical healing to make a statement about his divine authority, which the scribes clearly understand because they accuse him of being a blasphemer in verse three. Jesus says here, I want to make my divine authority crystal clear for all of you. I'm gonna give you a sign that you cannot miss. Now listen, it'd be hard for you to know whether or not I had the authority to forgive sins until the day you stand before God. But to prove my authority, to prove my ability to, to forgive my 
religious and divine authority as a sign, I'm going to once again display my authority over this man's body and the disease that ails him. When I tell him to get up and walk, know that I am restoring more than his body. I am restoring all that he is, physical and spiritual, and I am the only one, the only one who can do such things. Hear me, church family, even sin is no match for Jesus. And that's good news because we know the power of sin. We know how we've been oppressed and captivated by our enemy. We know the disobedience that has ravaged our hearts and separated us from God. But none of that is greater than Jesus. He has the power to forgive. He has the power to truly heal and restore. And we can trust in that power. Because of his faithfulness and the testimony of his authority, the testimony of the power These signs, they prove that he is not just from God, that he is God. And there's nothing that he can't save us from. Do you see his unmatched power? Do you see his unrivaled authority? What is your response this morning? Is your heart led to worship? Is your your heart led to to glory in Christ or is your heart hardened, dismissive because you don't want another authority in your life? Let's think through some appropriate ways to respond to these signs that have been given to us by the grace of God. How can we respond to what we are seeing in the testimony of Matthew. I think the first obvious obvious response for us is to commit to living a life of faith. These signs offer a call to live a life of faith, certainly in the interaction that Jesus has with his disciples on that boat. Think about to this point in Matthew's gospel, all that the disciples have witnessed They've witnessed miraculous healings. They've witnessed deliverances from demonic oppression. They have seen the power of Jesus. Yet there's still fear in them. When this powerful storm comes, they ask what's going to happen to them. They fear their own demise and they doubt the provision of God. They doubt the concern of God in that moment. When their life is threatened, fear overcomes them. They're anxious. They're not living as kingdom citizens. They have little faith according to Jesus. But Matthew wants to remind us that if we have Christ, there is nothing that we should fear. If we have Jesus, there's nothing that can come against us in this world that is greater than he who lives within us. Friends, What is it that we fear? What is it that you fear? Is it greater than Christ? Then why are we allowing the enemy to entrap us in anxiety? Why are we allowing the enemy to trap us in fear when we have Jesus with us? Can I challenge you and encourage you this morning? You may be in the midst of a storm. You may be in the midst of a difficult season. 
I've told you guys, not two years ago, I was in a, a very difficult time in my following Jesus. But here's the promise of Christ. If we will look to him, if we will trust in him in those difficult moments, he will take our little faith and grow it. If we will, if we will look to him and trust in him alone for salvation, the right kind of salvation, he is willing and able to provide. Listen, following Jesus is costly. And there will be days when it is difficult to remain obedient. There will be days when it may cost you 2,000 pigs. But will you be blinded by what you have lost? Will you be blinded on what it could cost you and miss the glory of Christ? Ask him this morning, Father, take my little faith and grow it because I know that I am safe in you. Let's, let's be a people of faith, not fear. That's certainly a, an appropriate response to this text. Secondly, let's, let's see and believe the divinity of Jesus Christ, that he is God. Because these signs, they offer us evidence. They offer a call to believe in the divinity of Jesus, that he is fully God and he is fully man. Another interesting dimension of this passage is the response of the people to what they see. Now, obviously, those in the Gentile country of the Gadarenes asked Jesus to leave. But in the other two scenes, in response to the other two signs, notice what the people say, 827. They marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even wind and sea obey him? And at the end of this passage in chapter 9, verse 8, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. They glorified God who had given such authority to men. It's interesting to me that in this section of Scripture that the disciples the people of God are somewhat missing what the demons recognize. Friends, this is not an ordinary man. This is not another prophet. This is the son of God. And everything that's on this page is pointing us to show that he is more than anything that we have seen, that he is the greater Moses, that he is the, the greater deliverer. Let's not miss what the demons even confess today. Let's not try to explain away who Jesus is to rob him of authority that he has in our life, whether we want it or not. Can I challenge you this morning? Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Not about him, because you can know about him. You can confess that he is the son of God and not have a transformed heart. You can say with your mouth something that hasn't affected who you are on the inside by the power of the spirit. Do you know Jesus? Have you, have you given your life to Christ? Has the confession shown up in your life? Making you a kingdom citizen living under the lordship of Jesus. 
Let's believe in the divinity of Christ and let it show up in our life, living under his rule and reign. And finally, our final response, let's rest in the promises of Christ. These these signs offer us the promise of true rest for those who believe in Jesus. Remember, these powerful, miraculous, surprising God-glorifying signs all have a gospel purpose attached to them. Remember the reason why Jesus is doing these things. It's, it's clearly explained to us in Matthew chapter 9. When he says to this paralytic man, your sins are forgiven. And these scribes say, who are you to forgive sins? You're not God? And Jesus says, oh yes I am. And here's how I'm going to prove it. Which is easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. But so you can know, this is the whole point of the miracles, so you can know that I have the authority to forgive sins, watch what I'm going to do with this man's body. Every miracle in the story of Matthew, in in Christ's earthly ministry, was to evidence, to be a sign of the fact that he is the promised Messiah that he is the one who could save, that he is the Lamb of God who is able to take away the sins of the world. And what I don't want to have happen here is what has happened so often in Christian circles where what is shown here to be evidence of the divinity of Christ is twisted to, to situate our hope not on what Christ is doing, what he has done and will do, but situate our hearts on a hope that rests here not in the hereafter. Again, what is being shown here is not healing on demand. As I said last week, friends, remember that every single person who was saved or healed in this text died from something else. Because our hope is not here. Our hope is there. Our hope is in a new heaven, in a new earth, joined by a new Jerusalem. And what we are seeing here is a foretaste of what awaits us, the day when Christ will return and make all things new. One of the the great frustrations or the great pains in ministry for me has to see people become disillusioned, grieved by God bitter toward God because they were asking and believing in promises that God never made. Friends, let's be sure that we see exactly what God is telling us here and rest in the promises that he has made. What he has promised, he will be faithful to. You can rest in that, but don't hold him accountable for something he never promised. Let's ask the Lord, to situate our hearts rightly this morning for the day when we will gather with all the saints singing holy, holy, holy to the the Lord our God for all of eternity. Let's ask God to situate our hearts there where our hope will be fully realized. And let's let these miracles and every miracle we experience in this life, let it accomplish its purpose to show us that Jesus is the promised deliverer. He's glorious, isn't he? 
This Christ, who is like him? No one. There's none like Jesus. Church family, let's live a life of faith because we have beheld the God-man, Jesus Christ, through the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit who is with us. And if he is, if he is with us, there's nothing to fear. And let's place our hope where it properly should be placed, in Jesus and the work that he is doing and will do. Wherever you are, would you bow your heads and ask the Lord to help you know how to respond this morning to the preached word? Again, do you know Christ? You may know about him. You may know what you're supposed to say about him. You may recognize that he has power. But have you believed in him? Have you asked him to take your heart of rebellion and transform it to a heart of obedience? Are you living a transformed life? a kingdom citizen under the rule and reign of Christ. Listen, if you've never confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you've never responded to the picture of Jesus that we have seen today in repentance and belief, let today be the day of your salvation. If you feel the, heart, if you feel the spirit moving in your heart, drawing you to Jesus, would you be obedient? We'll have some pastors and ministers here in the front who would love to speak with you about Jesus. We'll have some friends at the Discover Bayleaf station after the service. They would love to speak with you about Jesus. See the glory of Christ and respond. For the rest of us who are in Christ, are we living a life of faith or fear? Are we responding to the revelation of Jesus in the right way this morning? And are we placing our hope, not in this life, but in the next? When all things will be made new. And are we worshiping? Are we worshiping? Which is the proper response to the revelation that God gives of himself. Father, would you help us be a faithful people in response to our time before your word this morning, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You stand and respond as the Lord leads. Thank you for worshiping with us. For more information about Bayleaf Baptist Church, visit our website, bayleaf.org.